Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. And let's go ahead and we'll pray together before we open the word together. Lord, you are good. Before us, we have this blessed sign of your goodness. That you don't leave us in darkness. That you've given us the light of your revelation. That you've given us a holy, inerrant word that we can stand upon, that we can look to, that we can be shaped by. We pray this evening that we would have ears to hear. And we would have hearts that are fertile ground and fertile soil for the planting of the seed of your word. And we would have minds that are set upon heavenly things. And that you would choose to work by your word this evening by the power of your spirit. And we pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, this is the holy and errant word of God. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Though the grass withers, the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, Paul gives us a contrast here in these few verses, in verses 5 through 8, and he's looking back to the contrast that he give, gave us in verse 4, that there are those that walk according to the flesh, and there are those that walk according to the Spirit. And if you asked most Christians... Do you want to walk according to the Spirit or walk according to the flesh? They would all say, I think, I want to walk according to the Spirit. But the question is, how? What does that look like? And there, that question was asked, there would probably be a host of answers from Christians. Well, Paul, in our verses tonight here, in verses 5 through 8, and then in the weeks to follow, he's going to flesh out what it looks like to walk in the Spirit, to walk according to the Spirit. And as he does so in our text tonight, he focuses our attention upon the mind. Verse 5, if you look at that, is confirming what he said in verse 4. And then verse 6 is explaining verse 5. And then verse 7 is explaining why he said what he said in verse 6. And then Verse 8 gives a little more detail about what he said in verse 7. And all these verses are attempting to help us to see not just the contrast between walking in the flesh and walking in the Spirit, but he's trying to 
to seal to us, to impress upon us that those who are in the Spirit are to walk according to the Spirit. And he wants us to see what that looks like. He wants us to walk according to what we are. Two different ways to walk, which begins with two different minds. If we could give an overview kind of of these verses and what Paul is doing in these verses, we would start with the mind, which informs living, which bears fruit. So our mind, what our mind dwells upon, that informs our living. And as our living is informed, then that bears fruit. And there is some pretty significant fruit that Paul is going to address in these texts. So first, we have in verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Two different shaping influences. What we set our minds on, one is the flesh, the other is the Spirit. And there is also what I would call a governing disposition, as he speaks about it in verse 8, of those who are in the flesh, and the converse would be those who are in the Spirit. We're talking about what is shaping us, what forms us, what molds us. He says, the mind that is set on the flesh is being shaped by the flesh. And so it's being conformed to the flesh. And the mind that is set upon the Spirit is being shaped by the Spirit and therefore is being conformed to the Spirit. Flesh versus Spirit. One or the other. Let's define flesh here before we go too far. He's... Not speaking about your skin per se. That's not where Paul's mind is at in this text here in Romans 8. It has a broader meaning. It's, it's referring to our fallen nature. A nature which has been corrupted by sin and dominated by sin. And because it is corrupted by sin and because it's dominated by sin, it's committed to sin. To put your mind on the things of the flesh, as Paul says here in verse 5, is to delight in, to think about, to, to love, to, to seek after these things. It's speaking of our inner person, our, our inner thought life, our inner affections, our will, all that is within. Whereas the mind that is set on the things of the Spirit is consumed with, is delighting in, loves, is seeking after the things of God. It's the Holy Spirit that indwells and informs, that influences. And so it's the things of the Spirit that we set our minds upon then and seek to walk in. That's what delights us. Mind informs practice. That's Paul's concern here. What you think about. What's informing your mind. Because that sets your practice. If you want to know what you love, you listen to your thoughts. And that thought life informs the heart. And the heart shapes the will. 
First, I want you to see from this text our total inability to please God as our mind remains in the flesh. Man's total inability to please God in the flesh. The mind set upon the flesh is, he says in verse 7, he says it is hostile to God. And then he gives a conjunction there. He says, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, he says it cannot submit to God's law. It's hostile, he says to God. The mind that, it's, that is set on the flesh. That may surprise some. He doesn't simply say that those who have a mind set upon the flesh are enemies of God. That's not what he says. No, there is something much more here than just a categorical distinction. He's speaking of activity. The mind that is set upon the flesh is at enmity with God. Hates God. Hates God. If you ask the average person who has their mind set upon the flesh, whether they are hostile to God, whether they hate God, they would probably say, no, I don't even think about God. He doesn't figure into my mindset at all. I don't care about Him. And this shows the utter depravity of our minds. That we think somehow as created beings walking around this world that somehow we could distance ourselves from our Creator. That shows how far, how far our minds have fallen. It's hostility that animates them. It's hatred of God that causes one to set their minds on the flesh rather than on the Spirit. It's the animating principle at work behind the scenes. It's not just that the worldly person wants nothing to do with God or remains agnostic about God, but that they hate God. Such were all of you. That hatred is what causes a person to set their minds upon the things of the flesh. It is right, as has been said, uh, to understand sin as cosmic rebellion because that's what it is. We're His creatures, so it's impossible to ignore Him and simply say that we are living without Him. You can't. You can't just live without Him. You can't take a breath apart from Him. That, That seed that goes into the ground, it is sustained by Him. And as that little seed grows up and the rain falls on it to nourish it, it's the rain rain that He sends. And when it becomes a little twig, it's He that keeps the deer and the other animals from eating it. It's He that causes the sun to shine and to cause that plant to grow up into a tree and photosynthesis to take place and for oxygen to go out and for you to be able to breathe that oxygen in. It's He that allows your lungs to to take a deep breath because He's sustaining your heart. And your heart can be sustained because He's sustaining your skin and your bones so that there can be a heart and lungs can reside somewhere in there. And it's He that holds all of those molecules together that make all of this physical and real. You can't live apart from Him. 
It's an impossibility. You can't live a moment without either looking to Him or stealing from Him. Humanity tends to think that we can function like the person who moves to the mountains and the wilderness and is just getting off the grid. They aren't bothering anyone. They just want to be away from everyone and they have a right to act as if no one else exists. But we were created for Him and so it's an impossibility. It'd be more like a person that's hired by, a, by an office to be a worker there to sort out the mail and pass it out to all the other people that are in the office and then the person after a week decides they don't like their job but they're going to stay in the office. And they get out their tent and they just set up right in the middle of the office. They build a little fence around their tent and they're just going to camp out there. You'd say, this isn't what you were brought here to do. You're living on resources of this business. You can't just occupy the center here and we all walk around you. You're created with a purpose. It's an impossibility to live as if God doesn't exist. He does. And we're created for His glory according to His purposes. And we always live before His face. And we belong to Him. You can't set up camp in the middle of the world and act as though He doesn't exist without being offensive. It's cosmic rebellion. It's a raising of the fist and hatred against the One who told us what we are to be and what we are to do. A mindset upon the flesh is hatred of God. A mindset upon the flesh does not, Paul says in verse 7, submit to God's law. In fact, Paul says in verse 8, indeed, such a mind cannot. There is total inability in the fleshly mind. The person that has set their mind upon the flesh will not and cannot please God, Paul says in verse 8. No one does good, as he said earlier in the book. It's clear from our total inability that man cannot save himself. He cannot manifest the righteousness that's required. He does no good. None. We have to make clear, make that clear, there are Many who do good and maybe a redefined way in humanity, the person that is a philanthropist and gives all kinds of money to AIDS research or hunger in sub-Saharan Africa or provides scholarships for low-income students to attend college, they're doing good. It's what Calvin would have called a civic good. It's a true and good benefit for humanity. But how can they do such a thing? Well, they can do such a thing because they are the recipients of God's common grace. And it's true that sometimes a person that has their mind set upon the flesh does much more civic good than a person that has their mind set upon the Spirit. But it's not a saving good. Because it's not aimed at the glory of God. It does not flow from a life united to Christ and purchased by His blood. It has no pleasing quality to it in the economy of God's salvation. It merits them nothing. 
They do not please God. I'm thankful for them. Just reading about Kirk Douglas before I came here tonight and all the money he gave away in his passing away at 103 years old. Thankful he gave it away to all kinds of philanthropic things. Instead of giving Michael Douglas, who already has $300 million, another $50 million. Rather, a bunch of common grace saturated living non Christians and a bunch of non common grace living non Christians. It makes the world a happier place, but it does not earn them. It does not even give them a slight moment in heaven because it was not aimed at the glory of God and it does not please Him. It had a horizontal dimension, but it did not have a vertical dimension. Indeed, it could not. Because there is inability there to do anything for the glory of God. And that is why legalism is such foolishness. It's the silliest thing out there. To think that someone apart from Christ, apart from being born again, apart from being filled with the Spirit, can do enough good works to merit righteousness. To think that's even possible because they can't even do one. Not even one. The mind set upon the flesh and therefore the life that follows the flesh cannot and will not please God. But, and here's our second point. The righteous, those who set their mind upon the Spirit, love God's law and seek to live by it and thereby please God. And the Christian can and does seek to live by God's righteous standard and please Him. Those who live according to the Spirit because they've been born again by the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Something wholly different. Not on the flesh, but on the things of the Spirit. And they love God's law. Law becomes their delight because it's His will and it's what He desires and they want to please Him. R.C. Sproul on multiple occasions, I've either heard him say it or read it, miss him. On multiple occasions he would critique the phrase where someone says, well God says it, I believe it. That settles it. And only in a way that R.C. could, he would get incredibly animated and just destroy that. God says it, I believe it, that settles it. It's not a Christian phrase or set of three phrases. It's radically humanistic. Why? Because it's enough, as R.C. used to say, God says it, that settles it. It doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. That doesn't make the thing true. It's true because God said it and that settles it. And now I want to embrace it because God has said it and because I love God. The psalmist in that wonderful Chapter 119 of the Bible, the longest 
chapter in the entire Scriptures, all of it, is about the law of God. And the psalmist says in verse 97, he says, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation day and night. And notice he doesn't say, I love law. Who loves law? No one loves law. There's nobody walking around saying that I love law. Not at least law that impinges upon me, that hymns me in, that makes demands on me, that says I can't do this or I must do this. No one likes that, but that's not what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, I love thy law, O Lord. And that possessive pronoun makes all the difference. I love Thy law, O Lord. We don't just love law, we love His law. It is Thy law we love, O God. Why? Because His law is a reflection of His character. And we delight in the law because we love our God. In fact, we could say that our delight or lack thereof in God's law is an index of the spiritual condition of our heart. If we hate the law, we hate the God behind the law. If we despise the law, we despise the character of the lawgiver. If we neglect the law, then we neglect the God of the law. God's law reflects God's character, and we love this God, and so we love His law. Matthew Henry said this about the pleasantness of the religious life. He said, the love of God reigning in the soul, and that is true religion. It's as much satisfaction to the soul as the love of the world is a vexation to it when it comes to be reflected upon. We love God. And so we want Him to have dominion in every part and sphere and corner of our lives. So we seek set our minds upon the things of the Spirit, and we love His law. There's much satisfaction there. This passage not only rules out legalism, it rules out antinomianism, a kind of Christian neglect of the law. We love God's law because we love God. And as Christians, we seek to live our lives by the law of God, not to merit our justification but to live in step with the Spirit to the glory of our Father in Heaven. It's gratitude and it's love that drives us. And so when we find ourselves out of step with His law, when we are convicted by it, we are quick to confess it and we are quick to repent and we are quick to head down the path of righteousness again. Because we love to give pleasure to our Father. We don't justify sinning in the moment. We don't neglect the greater thing. I read a, an old preacher who used the analogy of a cat and a pig when he would talk about sin and the relationship it has with the believer and the unbeliever, the person who sets their mind upon the flesh and the person who sets their mind upon the spirit. And he says... The person who sets their mind upon the flesh is like a a pig that walks by a mud hole and just seeps into it and begins to wallow in it and stays there. 
Whereas the person that has set their mind upon the Spirit, they are like the cat who tries not to fall into the mud hole, but sometimes you do. And when you do, the cat immediately jumps out and it begins to clean itself. It doesn't want to stay there. We set our minds on the things of the Spirit and seek to walk according to the Spirit. We submit to God's law. Antinomianism has no place in the Christian life. And finally, you notice that the good life can only be had with a mind that is set upon the Spirit. Paul says, a mind set upon the flesh is death. It's death in the greatest possible way because it is death holy. It is separation from the living, triune God for all of eternity. That's the fruit. A mind set upon the flesh, its fruit is death complete and whole separation from God. But the mind set upon the Spirit, he says, is life and its peace. Life and peace. A life lived in the service of God is the most pleasurable life you can have. You will find no more joy-filled life than life lived with Christ. Those of you that have lived apart from Christ, you weren't raised in a Christian home, you can say, ah, there's many days that I knew that I wasn't in Christ. You know this. Experience this. To live for God is to live a life of repentance. We'll, we'll give into the flesh at times. We'll walk according to the flesh at times. We'll set our mind on the things of the flesh at times. And so, living in the Spirit and living a life of the Spirit and walking in the Spirit is going to be a life that is of continual repentance. It's just part of the life. Someone says, well, that sounds awfully miserable. Ah, but here's the secret. It's actually the path of the most pleasant life. It's a bitter pill to swallow that we must search our lives and that we have to search our hearts and we have to see sometimes what is there and the ugliness, things that couldn't imagine being there or there. And we are so thankful that everybody else in this room can't see into our minds and see into our hearts. It's surely always not pleasant to see that, but it's necessary. But that's not the fault of walking according to the Spirit that creates that kind of sorrow. But rather my strain from the path and walking according to the flesh. If repentance is hard, it's not the fault of godliness, but of sin. And the life of righteousness is the way of peace. It, it is there that the greatest delight can be found. And the things that are used to provide delight for my life by the Spirit are the greatest of things. 
things, all the comforts of Christ, all the benefits of Christ are mine. And all of those things that I used to find delight in become less and less appealing. Those things of the flesh. As a child, I had these two huge pieces of, I don't know what they are because I don't have a mind like this, but some kind of hard cardboardy thing. I don't know. But they were probably each two feet by four feet. And again, I don't know because I'm not good at those kind of things. But somewhere around there. And I would lay these things out on my floor in my room because I had a carpeted floor. And I would get out all of my army soldiers or all of my history Lego figures or all of my cowboys and Indians. And I'd set them all up on these huge pieces of hard cardboard and, and I would have epic battles. I would recreate history. And I would spend every night and all day Saturday in my fantasy land blowing up things and seeing soldiers wounded and people coming to the rescue and the 7th Calvary riding in. I remember when I was in middle school sometime, maybe it was 8th grade or so, I remember I hadn't played with them for about a year. I remember one day thinking, Sure would be fun to set them all up again. And uh, have that kind of excitement again. So I got out those big pieces of board and I laid them out on my carpet and I began setting up all of those soldiers and cowboys and Indians. And I thought I'd find the same delight. But it just wasn't as exciting. It wasn't as enthralling. There wasn't the same appeal or the same enjoyment. And yet, if I think back, there were other things that seemed more appealing. Like when I was a small child, every time you would see a movie and two people would kiss on it, the first thing out of my mouth was, oh, gross. Well, all of a sudden, that became a little more appealing. I was a small child, and someone would offer me a lollipop or a five-star steak dinner, I would have chosen the lollipop. But now that steak dinner looks a little better. I changed. My delights had changed. I've matured. The things of the flesh have far less enjoyment for the Christian. Moses found it more pleasurable, as the writer of Hebrews says, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. The reproach of Christ greater than all the treasures of Egypt. It's a different pleasure. Because it's a mind set on different things. Different desires. Different longings. We've grown beyond it. We've been born again. We've been raised a new life. And the orientation of that new life is heaven. And so we set our minds upon heavenly things. 
on the things of the Spirit. What we once found very enjoyable is not as enjoyable. What once was enthralling is now, in, is now detestable. And what we once thought was boring and mundane and dull now fires our delights more than anything else possibly could. Remember watching Christians go to church when I was an unbeliever and thinking, what is wrong with you? You're missing the Fox pregame show. And you're missing the epic battles of the Packers versus the Bears. And now, there is nothing that is more enjoyable in this life than gathering together with God's people in the house of the Lord. So we pray. Lord, help us to grow in our delight of You. Do you pray that for yourself? Do you pray that for your family members? Do you pray that for your brothers and sisters in the church? Because you know that the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. I wonder, do you labor Set your mind more and more on the things of the Spirit and less and less on the things of the flesh. No, I mean really labor. I give the head nod and the wink, but labor after it. Do you pray for it? We will work for years on our golf swing so that when we play golf, it's more pleasurable. We'll labor for Years, decades for some of us with our children so they're obedient, yes, so that it benefits them, but also so that it benefits us. We want our lives more enjoyable. We'll plan and we'll plot vacations to find pleasurable release. Do you expend more energies on seeking to grow in your joy and your delight in Christ? Are you active in setting your mind upon the Spirit, knowing that it is life and peace to do so? Do you plot? Do you plan how to grow in your prayer life? Or just every once in a while do you feel convicted that I don't pray as I want to pray, and, and you quickly move on, and then you're convicted again later? Or do you plot and plan to grow in your prayer life? Do you labor hard to grow in your knowledge of the Word of God so that your mind is informed and steeped in the things of the Spirit? Are you disciplining your body in that way? Are you training yourself in that way? Do you spend time thinking upon Christ in quiet moments? Or do your thoughts always run to restaurants and hobbies and recreations and work? Those are all good things. But there's a great thing that we should want to dwell on even more and find ourselves delighting in even more. We're taking pains to grow in our delight there. Knowing that as we do, there's wonderful fruit. 
There's life. There's peace. Friends, there is no more pleasurable life than the life lived for Christ. It's life and peace. And the more we grow in our walking with Christ, the more pleasurable this life becomes. You see that in old saints that have done this for 80 years and there seems to be a contentment in their lives that that we don't understand. Seems to be a peace no matter what comes. And we get a flat tire and it upsets our world. It's just a mind that has been trained to keep setting itself upon heavenly things. Not perfectly. It's never going to be perfect. But just continually growing in it step by step. Week after week. Month after month. Year after year. Decade after decade. And the fruit. Ah, the fruit. It's worth it. It's the most pleasurable life you can lead because He is what we were created for and what we were redeemed for. And so our soul will find its greatest satisfaction in Him. And ultimately, He is our chief pursuit, giving glory to Him. Paul says in verse 8 that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the reverse is also true. Those that are in the Spirit, that set their minds upon the things of the Spirit, they can please God. And that's the Christian's aim. We want to please our God. We want to give Him glory, to glorify Him. And in His unbelievably beautiful beautiful wisdom and good providence, He has tied together His glory and our good. That has to be one of the most astounding things in all of creation. He ties together His glory with our good. So that as we seek His glory, it actually works to our good. That we can say with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. They're tied together. They can't be separated. So you set your mind on the things of the Spirit and you give Him glory. And you'll find that there is the pleasurable life the life of peace. Let's pray. Lord and our God, we do want to please You. We want to live as those who have been united to our Lord and our Savior by Your Spirit. We want to set our minds upon the things of the Spirit and walk in accordance with the Spirit. That we might give glory to You. Oh, Father, forgive us for how often we set our minds upon the things of the flesh where there is only the dead-end road of death. 
And help us to see that the pleasurable life is found in seeking You according to Your will, loving Your truth and Your law, and abiding in that Spirit that dwells in us and producing good fruit for Your glory. We pray that as the weeks and the months and the years and the decades pass, we would say that we've grown in our walk in the Spirit. We find that we have greater delight in the things of our Lord and our Savior. And that we find that this is by far the most pleasurable life we could ever live. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.